Before we get started in our study of the Word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, to have our thinking brought back into an orientation to reality based upon the truths that you've communicated in your word, knowing that it is your word that stabilizes our emotions and focuses our life on eternal realities. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us to indwell us and to also fill us and to teach us your word. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to his teaching ministry. And Father, we also remember uh, Eager and his wife as they travel tomorrow. We pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe, and that uh, this would be a good move and they would have a profitable ministry uh, in, this, in their attempt to start this new church. Father, we continue to pray for Jim and Phyllis and all that they're involved in, and we thank you for their ministry, their dedication, their faithfulness, and pray that you would continue to supply all of their needs and above and beyond what they need. We just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Now, I have to wear this crazy pair of reading glasses because somewhere in the travels, my regular pulpit glasses disappeared from my suitcase. So, we'll just put up with this. Revelation chapter 2 through 3 consists of seven letters to seven congregations in the western part of modern Turkey, what was then Asia Minor. These short epistles are really designed not so much to teach doctrine and to encourage application, as you see in the uh, other epistles of the New Testament, but they are designed to present a critical evaluation of the spiritual progress of each of these congregations. As a result, they each follow a certain pattern. They begin with a commission, an address to the local congregation at the beginning of each epistle. Then there is a reference to a particular aspect of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his present ministry as the priest judge over the church. These citations all relate to something in the vision that John saw of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on the island of Patmos, with one exception. There's uh, one of the epistles has additional uh, information. Then there is a commendation in all but two of them. Two of the churches are so uh, messed up in their uh, application of doctrine. They're operating on so much human viewpoint. They're no different from the pagan culture around them. But except for those two, the others all have a commendation, a praise for their spiritual advance. The fourth section of each of these epistles contains a condemnation. Now, there are also two of these congregations that have no condemnation. This is a warning concerning a spiritual flaw in the congregation and their application of doctrine. The fifth part of the epistle contains a correction, a challenge to repent, meaning to change your thinking with consequent change in behavior, and uh, in some cases to remember the, the doctrine that they have been taught or remember the way they applied doctrine in the past, and there is a prescription to recovery. The sixth section is a call, which is a command to listen and to apply uh, the doctrines that are contained in these uh, passages so that they will get back uh, in terms of their uh, reorient in terms of their application of doctrine. Then there's a challenge a, in each of these epistles, which is a personal promise of reward. The orientation of these epistles is going to challenge us with reference to our own 
personal sense of our eternal destiny. Each of these seven epistles orients itself to what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. And at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be believers who have persevered, who have pressed on in the spiritual life, and who have advanced to spiritual maturity and will receive rewards. On the other hand, there are believers who are going to fail. There are believers who are just going to be glad they're saved, and then they're going to continue to live as if they weren't saved. There are believers who are just going to spend a couple of years, perhaps, uh, learning some things about the Word and advancing, and then they're just going to fall by the wayside. We all know folks like this, and they are going to lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be shame as well at the judgment seat of Christ. And in these epistles, we see different kinds of privileges and different kinds of rewards that will be available to those believers who press on to spiritual maturity. Now, this is going to be a rugged study for a lot of us because it's a real challenge whenever you get into talking about rewards and talking about the fact that there are going to be distinctions among believers when we get to, uh, when we get to heaven and at the Lordship, at the, uh, at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, and that there are going to be distinctions when we go into the millennial kingdom and distinctions in eternity based on what we do now so that the decisions that we make now are going to determine who we are and what we do in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. But if you think that these seven epistles are rugged, just wait till we get into Hebrews on Thursday night because that's the whole issue in Hebrews is that these believers, Jewish believers, were tempted to just go back to Judaism, go into spiritual regression and to step away from Christianity to no longer make doctrine the number one priority in their life and to no longer go forward. And there's about six serious warning passages in the book of Hebrews which are basically the thrust of this is to challenge us with the principle described later in the book of Hebrews that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a, an epistle that is designed to grab us and to grab our attention and make us realize that every decision, every second, every day is a serious time in the angelic conflict, in our own spiritual life, and in our own spiritual advance. So if you have the courage to face that, then you'll be here on Thursday night. Now, the seven letters are addressed to the seven congregations that are located down here in the Roman province of Asia. And they are located at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There's a movement in a, a clockwise fashion from the lower left hand at Ephesus around to the uh, lower right hand at Laodicea. We will go through each one of these as time permits over the next uh, several months. Now, there's a number of different views that are presented as to why the Holy Spirit chose these seven churches. And that's a perceptive question to ask. Why these seven churches? They weren't all in a row. If you were to travel from Ephesus to Philadelphia, you certainly wouldn't go through these other uh, cities. Some of these cities were quite large. Others were a bit smaller. Uh, there were certainly many other significant congregations and churches in Asia Minor. For example, we think of uh, Colossae, where Paul wrote the epistle to the Colossians. But Colossae is not mentioned. There were a number of others that were mentioned. So we should answer this question, why these seven churches? Why did the uh, Holy Spirit choose these? Well, there's three basic views on this. The first view is that there's a that these are all prophetic, and this is a view that is proposed by a group known as hyper dispensationalists. Hyper dispensationalists. Now, a hyper dispensationalist is someone who doesn't believe that the church started on the day of Pentecost. They believe that the church started, depending on your brand of hyper dispensationalism. Uh, some think that the church started with the call of of a 
uh, Paul, when Paul is saved. Others think that it doesn't begin until Paul first crosses into uh, Europe on his second missionary journey. Others think that the church age doesn't begin until the close of the book of Acts. So their view is that it's all prophetic. They have a, uh, they take this distinction between Israel and the church to uh, an illegitimate conclusion. And they argue that these seven letters are all future in their orientation, no fulfillment in the church age whatsoever, and that they represent Jewish assemblies during the tribulation period. And they, they try to argue that, um, that since angels are mentioned in each of these letters, and angels are never mentioned, they claim, with reference to the church, they conclude that these must be Jewish congregations. The problem is that both 1 Corinthians 11.10, uh, 1 Peter 1.12, 1 Peter 4, all mention that angels are observing what's going on in congregations today. So there is an involvement of angels in the church age. They are invisible and unseen, but as I pointed out in our study in the past uh, two or three lessons, there is a clear role of angels as court representatives or officers of the court uh, during the church age. Furthermore, there is a claim by the hyper-dispensationalists that in the early church, two of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who lived in the uh, late 2nd century from about 145 to 220, and Epiphanius, who lived around 367, the middle of the 4th century, that these two church fathers support this view. However, analysis of the writings of both of those church fathers indicate that they believed that these churches were literal churches in Asia Minor, literal congregations. So it's not future at all. We have to reject that uh, hyper-dispensational view. The other view that you've probably run into at some time or another, if you've been a Christian for very long or studied prophecy, is the idea that these congregations represent different stages in church history that uh, even though they're, they're not marking out prophecy for the church age, there is a, a trend presented here, that, and there's a flow in history. You start with the Ephesian church, which represents the early uh, apostolic church from the time of the fall of uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. up through about 175, and through that period they became, began a little cold in their orthodoxy, and then the Smyrna church represents the persecuted church from about 175 to 312. And then the uh, Thyatira church represents the early medieval church. The church in Pergamum represents the late medieval church prior to the Reformation. Sardis represents the church uh, that needs reform. Uh, Philadelphia represents the Reformation church and the post-Reformation church. Uh, the missionary movements of the uh, late 18th and 19th century, and then the Laodicean church represents the liberal modern church. And so this is very popular to, to see this as presenting a trend through history. Unfortunately, everybody you read who takes this view takes a different view of how this breaks down. In fact, I was reading one uh, British author today, a good dispensationalist, and he had a lengthy appendix in his commentary on Revelation trying to argue for this particular position. And it was the first time I'd seen anybody do this. He basically argued that the, the Smyrna church, or excuse me, the Thyatira church began in the early Middle Ages and then continued down through the present time and identified it as many dispensationalists used to with the Church of Rome that the Pergamum church was the uh, Reformation church, the Sardis was the uh, Counter-Reformation, the Philadelphia church was the uh, church of, that began with Wesley and the Wesleyan reforms and, and moved to missions in the late, uh, late 18th century, and that continues through the modern period. So that he tries to... to um, he doesn't have a clear break from one church period to another. 
he basically sees about half of them starting and then continuing until the Lord comes back. Well, I don't think he can really support that from church history. There's a lot of subjectivity that comes to play in terms of your interpretation of church history, and there are numerous scholars uh, who reject this as a forced interpretation. The third view is the view that uh, I take and that most of you have been taught in the past, and that is that these congregations represent historical trends so that each church is selected because it represents a certain kind of congregation. And the Holy Spirit has chosen these seven because at any period of time in church history you will find one of these seven kinds of churches or any congregation probably fits into one of these patterns. So that these represent the general historical trends that characterize congregations throughout the uh, church age period. This interpretation uh, consistently holds to the view that chapter 1, verse 19, gives you a threefold division of the book of Revelation, the things that were, that is, the original vision that John had of Jesus Christ on the Isle of Patmos in the first chapter, the things that are present tense, that Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 represent what is going on in the church age, and that beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, you have the things that will be after this. So of the three views that are uh, held by uh, dispensationalists or those that believe uh, in a uh, distinction between Israel and the church and that Revelation is a prophetic book, that it should be interpreted for the most part in terms of uh, end-time prophecy, at least chapter 4 on, these are the views of handling Revelation 2 and 3. We hold that third view that this represents historical trends. So we have to examine this in the privacy of our soul under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. As we go through these trends, we have to check off these, these commendations and condemnations in terms of our own spiritual life. This is what I did in the last lesson before we, I took off for Ukraine, was to summarize the, the pluses and minuses in the seven epistles. Now, beginning this evening, we're going to start looking at this first epistle, this first short uh, critique, Congregational Evaluation Report to the Angel of the Church of Ephesus. And so this begins with its uh, address to this angel. And as I pointed out before, this angel represents a literal angel who in the function of the appeal trial of Satan is an officer of the court who is keeping records of each congregation. Where this is leading us is to see that there is a, a congregational corporate witness in the angelic conflict, that not only are we uh, held accountable in terms of our own lives and, and that individually we have a role as a testimony or witness in the angelic conflict, but that also in, the, uh, in our marriage there's a corporate witness and as a congregation there is a corporate witness. So this is written or posted, one copy posted with the, uh, with the heavenly court, with the angel of the church of Ephesus, and then another copy of the entire book of Revelation was sent to each congregation. Now we'll start off with some background on Ephesus. Ephesus was founded about 1400 B.C., 1400 to 1300 B.C. This was about the time that the Jews under Joshua were going into the land and conquering the Canaanites. The early development of, of Ephesus was Mycenaean. The Mycenaean Greeks came out of the southern part of Greece, came out of the uh, uh, Achaean area, Corinth, Athens, and that area. Later, there were Ionian colonists that established the city in Ephesus about 1,000 A.D. And there were 12 cities that were established as colonies along this western side of Asia Minor, or Turkey, that became known as the Pan-Ionic League. And Ephesus was the central city the key power base in the Pan-Ionic League. 
they had uh, quite a history. They came under attack and were dominated for a period in the ancient world by the Lydian kingdom under, under Creasus, who became a primary benefactor in the construction of the uh, main architectural uh, institution at Ephesus, which was the Temple of Diana, as it's described in the King James Version, or in the Greek, the Temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. After uh, Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was split up between his four generals, and Lysimachus uh, took control over the area of Greece and Turkey. He renovated the city, built a massive wall about seven miles long and ten feet high, ten feet thick around the city. The terrain of Ephesus is very similar to that that you'll run into uh, west of Austin in the hill country. When we were there last summer, it was 114 degrees, and so it's quite warm, arid. You can see from the uh, photograph that it's uh, brushy terrain, not unlike the hill country in Texas. You can see that there's uh, various ruins here. Now, a lot of the area in this photograph has not been excavated yet. They don't know what's under a lot of that dirt. There's walls, there's columns, there's various uh, buildings that are yet to be excavated. And that leads to a point, I think in the past I've taught that the population of Ephesus was about a quarter of a million. And that has been held by a number of scholars. And in my research in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've uncovered the fact that there's some debate as to how some of these ancient uh, Latin texts should be translated, that there may have been some mistake. And so scholars debate as to if, if that was correct. Uh, and if it's not, then we have no idea how uh, populous the area was. But it's a large, a large site. Ephesus is one of the largest areas of architectural remains over in uh, that part of the country. This is one of the main cities, main areas where you have the basilicas here, and these were various shops and stores that were uh, along this colonnade. This is a another shot of the uh, Odeon on the north side of the city. I believe, or on the actually on the east side, walking uh, from uh, west, to, excuse me, from east to west into the city, just looking at some of the different uh, ruins there. This is looking down the main avenue that we walked down towards the Library of Celsus, which was not built until the middle of the second century. Celsus was a well-known adversary of Christianity and a Gnostic. This gives you a broad view of the city. This main edifice right here is the uh, Library of Celsus. This section behind it, the flat plain, was where the uh, Adriatic, or excuse me, the um, Mediterranean came in, the Aegean came in during the time that the Apostle Paul was there. But the Caister River that flows down to uh, the Aegean has silted in. This was a major problem even in the ancient world. And now Ephesus, which was a major harbor at the time, made it a, one of the most important ports in the ancient world, is now six miles uh, from the Aegean. This gives you another view of the city. You can see it was spread out, and there are quite a number of ruins there uh, to examine. Now this is a close-up shot of the facade of the Library of Celsus, and one of the things just down here on the lower right, you see a, an umbrella. Just on the other side of that individual, there was, a, there was a hole in the ground that led down to a tunnel, and some of the Baptist ladies that were in our group were quite offended because the guy told us that, that the men would come and tell their wives they were going to the library, and this was a tunnel to the red light district. So... I guess human nature hasn't changed a whole lot. The major, one of the major ruins there is the theater. And this is referred to in Acts chapter 19, where there was a tremendous riot caused, and the people gathered here, several, uh, there may have been 15 or 20,000 people gathered in this theater to protest the teaching of the gospel in Paul's ministry. 
Acts 19.29 says the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And they wanted to arrest them and to uh, throw them in jail because of the gospel ministry. This gives you a pic- an idea of the size of the theater there. And I stood down in the middle of the stage and spoke in just a regular voice, and Pam went up to the top, and she could hear me. just shows the remarkable acoustics, just the opposite of what we have in this auditorium. You know, that reminds me, when we sing, everybody's so spread out. We've had three or four people mention that perhaps if people didn't spread out so much and sort of pulled in a little bit when we meet on Sunday night, that we might sing a little better might sound a little better. This is a huge, uh, almost like being in a grave, trying to sing in here. It's amazing. I, if you stand up here, you can barely hear the congregation sing. It just the sound of your voice just gets absorbed by all this empty space. So if we were a little closer together, I don't mean we have to have close fellowship, but if we got a little closer together, it would sound a little better. Another perspective on the theater and the road here in the foreground of the picture is the road that went down to the port. And this is the opposite view. And at the end of that road was where the ancient port of Ephesus uh, was located. Of course, now that's all silted in. And just off to the right was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis. It was the largest Greek temple in the ancient world. It lasted for 1,200 years through various stages of reconstruction. It was destroyed a few times, but it was always rebuilt. It was finally destroyed about about the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, by the invasion of the Goths. Little is left today other than the foundation. Now, this is a picture of the of the statue of the goddess Artemis, or she was known by the Romans, Diana of the Ephesians, as, she's, as it's translated in the King James and New King James. In Acts chapter 19, Paul ran afoul of the uh, idolatry that was rampant in Ephesus, and they worshipped Artemis or Diana. She was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. And here's another picture of her. She was known as the, as you can tell from the image, the many-breasted goddess. She was the goddess of fertility. Now, Tom Wright asked me a question when I, I had him scan these in for me, and he said, he said, now, is there some kind of correlation between uh, Artemis and the term El Shaddai, which was a name for God in the Old Testament originating in Genesis. And some of you may have heard that the term El Shaddai was a title for God that uh, was also translated or meant the many-breasted God, indicating his his grace and his logistical grace and his provision. And that is really a misnomer. The, the basic core of El Shaddai, Shaddah, is a word that is only attested in the Bible in terms of that particular title. And so Hebrew scholars are uncertain as to just exactly what the root of Shaddai uh, meant. And if you go back to the classic Hebrew dictionary, which is known as Brown, Driver, and Briggs, or uh, seminary students all refer to it as just BDB, and I just about ruined my copy going through my second year of Hebrew and Psalms. You just almost broke the spine on it. You're in that dictionary so much. This classic Greek lexicon, I mean Hebrew lexicon, came out in 1909, the original edition. And since 1909, there have been a vast number of Aramaic and Hebrew uh, manuscripts discovered, or at least copies of the Bible. Advances have been made. We now have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have uh, the discovery of the Hittite Empire in 1927. So that BDB is tremendously out of date. Well, just to show you why this is significant, back in the late 60s when they did the New American Standard Translation, the, the 
policy of the translators was that when they translated the Old Testament, they took the BDB meaning for Hebrew words automatically. They didn't question it. They didn't go through and evaluate other lexical studies that had come out since 1909. And so there are some problems even in the New American Standard. And in consulting the latest Hebrew Aramaic lexicon known as HAL, that came out about 97 or 98 and was a revision of an older German work, but is completely updated, there are at least three different Hebrew words that have this same root. And it is no longer theorized by linguists that the name Shaddai has anything to do with being many-breasted. It has to do with power and authority and relates to the omnipotence of God. So there's no correlation whatsoever between uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being a fertility god and the fertility goddess of Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Artemis wasn't the only goddess or god that was popular in Ephesus. She, of course, is the patron goddess of the Ephesians, but there were at least 25 other gods worshipped in Ephesus, including several Egyptian deities. Now, the reason this is important is because the Ephesians weren't just locked into one false system of religion. They accepted all these other gods and goddesses. So we have to ask the question, why did they get so bent out of shape when Paul came into town and started teaching the gospel and publicly proclaiming that there was, uh, that these idols were not gods or goddesses at all, that they represented nothing. And this is what caused uh, people to turn away from the worship of Artemis. And one of the things that they did was they bought these, bought silver pins that, uh, that they would wear that had bees on them, and the bee was a symbol of Artemis because bees don't apparently procreate, and in the ancient world they didn't understand the function of the queen bee. In fact, they called it the king bee, and they didn't understand how bees procreate, so bees became a symbol of virginity and therefore became a symbol of Artemis, who was a virgin goddess and goddess of uh, fertility. So when the silversmiths who made these uh, little tokens and also made images of the temple, when their business started uh, going under, they got their union together, and Demetrius started uh, raising a ruckus about the whole thing, and they had a riot in Ephesus, and that's when they uh, uh, got Paul's companions together, and they were uh, about to uh, throw them into jail, and that's what was the cause of this riot in Acts chapter 19. Now, this is important to understand all for background in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 16 through 20, as you follow Paul on his second and then third missionary journey, we pick up an understanding of how the church got started in Ephesus. Now, this is all uh, significant in terms of understanding the background to what is going on in uh, Ephesus in 95 A.D., this is now some 40 years after Paul first went to Ephesus. I just want to give you a summary of what goes on in Acts 16 through 20. I would encourage you uh, at some time to read through those chapters just to give you the uh, background. In Acts chapter 15, verse 40, Paul departs on his second missionary journey. The second missionary journey took Silas with him, and he revisited the cities of Lystra and Derbe in the south-central part of uh, what we would call Turkey today, according to Acts 16, verse 3. After, at that time, he picks up Timothy as his traveling companion. Now, we have to what we're doing here, remember the old days when you were kids and we'd watch cartoons and they'd have a song up there and you'd sing along with the bouncing ball? Well, we're going to follow the bouncing ball here, and the bouncing ball is Timothy. I'm going to make a point out of all this that gives us a little background, but watch where Timothy, watch when Timothy is with Paul and when he's not with Paul. So he begins his missionary journey, picks up Timothy, and he heads towards Asia Minor. And Paul wants to go into the area around Ephesus and take the gospel, but the Scripture specifically states in Acts 16.6 that the Holy Spirit prohibited Paul from preaching the word in Asia. 
So he decided to head north and northeast uh, towards Bithynia, and again the Holy Spirit blocks him. So he's, he's being forced by the Holy Spirit in the direction of Troas and what is uh, modern Constantinople up there near the Dardanelles. And it is at that point at Troas that Paul has the Macedonian vision and call and recognizes that God is leading him to take the gospel to Europe. At that point, when you cross over the Dardanelles, you move from Asia to Europe, and Paul is understands that his mission is to take the gospel to Europe. So he took a boat and traveled for two or three days by boat to the city of Neapolis, which is the modern city of Kavala, and he... he got off the boat, went to Philippi, and then in Acts chapter 16, 17, down through 18, 18, Paul is traveling to the various cities in Greece. He's going to, uh, as they call it today, uh, Philippi and Varia, not Berea as we say, but Varia, goes down to Athens, and there in Athens at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, just below the, the Parthenon, where within his vision he could see at least seven or eight different temples, Paul challenges the Athenians that, that these aren't gods at all, and he points to the altar to the unknown God and says, this is the God I'm going to proclaim to you. Now this guy had tremendous courage to stand there and see what he was doing in the midst of all of this opposition. He's standing in front of these Athenian philosophers who are world-renowned for their intellect, and he's standing there in front of probably priests and others from these various religious systems, and he says, all this is false. None of this has anything to do with God. I'm going to tell you about the true God. And, of course, they uh, ridiculed him, and Paul, if you go to... Uh, Acts 17 and study what he said there. He never got to the gospel in the passage. He starts off talking about, I'm going to tell you about the God who made the heavens and the earth. Because at that point, what Paul has to do is, is orient, before he can ever tell them who Jesus is, he has to get started at the beginning. Who God is. God, the God I'm going to tell you about made the heavens and the earth. He's the sovereign God. He's not like any of these other gods. And then he would move from there to talk about sin, but he never got that far because he's proclaiming God as a creator, and that caused a stir and a reaction. And eventually, he did communicate the gospel because Acts 17 tells us that there were three or four people who did respond positively to the gospel. But this was all part of the second missionary journey. From there, he went down to Corinth. And then he caught a ship home. He's made a vow, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And he made a brief stop at Ephesus. This is now his first time in Asia. And he briefly goes to the synagogue where he entered into some uh, discussions with the Jews there. Apparently at that point we can see that there's no Christian community, no church in Ephesus. He went to Jerusalem, went to Antioch, and gave a, a, a home church a missions report, and during this time he has left Silas and Timothy in Corinth. Now at that point, Silas and Timothy traveled with him down through Greece, and they stayed at Corinth. He left to go home, and the next time we see Timothy, he's in Ephesus. We don't know when he went from Corinth to Ephesus, but he's at this point, at the end of the second missionary journey, Timothy is in Corinth and ministering to the Corinthian congregation. Paul goes home, gives a report to the home church in Antioch, and during that time, Apollos comes along. It's the first time we hear about Apollos. He was a a classically trained Greek who was from Alexandria. He just understands the Old Testament, and he shows up in Ephesus, and he's preaching an Old Testament gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila, who are a couple that had worked with Paul in his tent-making business, uh, Priscilla and Aquila straighten Apollos out uh, with, in terms of the gospel. And then Apollos goes to Corinth, and he pastors and teaches in Corinth for a while. Now, while Apollos is still in Corinth, Paul leaves. We'll go back to Paul. Paul leaves on his third missionary journey, and he goes to Ephesus. Finally, he has a ministry in Asia. And in Acts 19, verse 10, we're told that he was there for at least two years. Eventually, we find out he was there for almost three years. And during those two years, he taught 
in the school of Tyrannus. Now, I think it's interesting. We're not told that he taught at the church. We're not told that Paul specifically pastored a church, but he definitely had a training school there. And in Acts 19.10, we're told that this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that's a fascinating verse, because remember earlier I pointed out that on his second missionary journey, he wanted to take the gospel to Asia, and the Holy Spirit prohibited it. So in the timing of the Lord, it wasn't ready yet. Now it was time to take it to Ephesus, and he sets up a training school where he's training a number of people like Timothy and Titus and the whole host of these young men, and they're going out to all of these various cities in Smyrna and Sardis and Pergamum and Thyatira and Colossae and Laodicea, and they're uh, leading people to the Lord, and they're establishing congregations. And it is these congregations that later become the focus of the first part of Revelation. Now, in Acts 19, we get a description of the, what took place while Paul was in Ephesus. And Luke describes three basic events in that chapter. First of all, there's the case of the misbaptized Baptists. These are the disciples of John the Baptist who are still teaching a uh, baptism for repentance to enter the kingdom of God. John's John the Baptist's baptism. And so they had not heard about Jesus, and so Paul gives them the gospel, and they become saved, and then Paul baptizes them with believers' baptism. And first part of Acts 19. Then there's this episode where you have the, the Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva who try to cast out demons by using the formula Paul used, uh, in the name of Jesus, and then the demons beat up on him. And it's a humorous little episode in the Scripture. But the result of it is that Paul casts out a demon, and this is such a testimony to the people in Ephesus that hundreds of people trust the Lord. And as a result of that, and, and, and the background of this is that they were... Uh, involved in all this idolatry and all of this paganism and some degree demonism, that they, you have the first real book burning in history. And voluntarily, they bring all of their occult manuals and their occult books and all of their paraphernalia, and they have a bonfire and burn all this stuff up, indicating that they have made a complete break with their past. But it's at the same time that you have the third episode, which has to do with this riot from the silversmiths. Uh, Demetrius, who was apparently the head of the silversmith union in Ephesus, uh, was upset with Paul. Now, what had gone on here? This is crucial to understand a lot of different things, and, and it relates to some of the things that Charlie taught last week when he was here. What happens is Paul comes into town, and he publicly is denouncing that idols are no gods at all. Now, the Jews had been, there had been a Jewish presence in Ephesus since at least 325 B.C., but they had not publicly condemned idolatry. They had condemned it over in their synagogues, but they weren't going out into the street and teaching people that these gods were not gods at all. Paul is doing that. And see, biblical Christianity is always going to develop a confrontation with the human viewpoint culture that surrounds us. And there are some people who get the idea that that for some reason Christianity just relates to your own spiritual life and your own relationship to God. But what we see here is when you're teaching and you are espousing the principles of biblical Christianity, it is a head-to-head confrontation uh, with your culture. And it impacts the culture economically and morally. And as a result of that, what you see is that the human viewpoint pagans in the surrounding culture react to that. They are hostile to the Word of God. Romans 1 talks about the fact that they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And this generates a a reaction of hostility and anger and resentment towards those who are espousing the truth. Now think about that in terms of some things that have been going on in the United States in the last few years. There's more and more of a resentment to Christianity. Christians are, are blamed for some things. There have been episodes where those who've taken a stand for... Um, 
uh, for or against uh, same-sex marriage have uh, been thrown in jail. There was an episode up in Vancouver in Canada this last year where a, a man took out an ad in the paper, and all he had on this ad was Bible verses from 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1, a couple other passages that just made a statement that homosexuality was a sin. He was arrested for hate speech and put in jail. And when he came to court, his argument was that this was just an expression of free speech. And the court said that no, free speech had to do with expressing your opinion. But when you're quoting the Bible, what you're saying is that this is absolute truth, and therefore uh, you're making a statement that there's an absolute in the universe that condemns uh, homosexuality, and this is hate speech, and this is prohibited, and so he was sentenced to jail for a couple of years. I mean, this is the direction that our culture is moving, because the more the culture gets away from our Judeo-Christian roots, the more that we move away from a theistic worldview, the more our culture comes into a head-to-head confrontation with biblical Christianity. And so if you as a believer are out here trying to apply Scripture in whatever area you're in. Uh, You may be a a teacher. You may be in business. You may be in economics. And you're trying to consistently apply the Scripture in your area of life. You are going to meet resistance uh, that's going to sometimes be quite hostile. And this is what happened uh, with Paul and uh, this riot in Ephesus. Now, just before the riot occurs, uh, Acts 19.22 tells us that Paul sent Timothy and Erastus up to Macedonia. So then he sends them out of town. They're up in uh, Macedonia. And then Paul left uh, after the riot to go to Macedonia and Greece. Who's with him? Timothy. Timothy's with Paul, and they go through Greece on uh, this... Um, uh, third missionary journey, and he returns to, to Ephesus by ship, taking with him uh, Tida, uh, taking with him Luke and Timothy, and a number of others are with him. Who's pastoring the believers back in Ephesus? It's not Paul. It's not Timothy. Maybe Titus is back there, but we don't know. Apollos may be there. But the point that I am making is that that when you look at Acts chapter 20, you realize that Paul, Timothy, usually when we think of the pastors in Ephesus, we think of Paul, Timothy, and John. Paul, Timothy, and John. Timothy is clearly pastoring there later on when Paul writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. But there had to be other pastors because this is at least one time period when neither Paul nor Timothy are present. And in Acts 20, 28... And actually, it's from about verse 21 down to about verse 30. Paul stops at Miletus, which is on the coast, not far from Ephesus. He doesn't want to take the time to go to Ephesus, but he called for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet with him. And he was going to give them, them some teaching, some instruction. And in verse 28, we're told that he addresses the elders. Now, the elders are of Ephesus. The word for elder is the Greek word presbyteros. Now, this refers to the pastors in Ephesus, and it's in the plural. So there's more than one. And in verse 28, we read, Therefore, Paul says to them, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word episkopos. I think the King James translated bishops. So that word again is in the plural. So there's numerous men who are in this leadership position over the church in Ephesus. And this is a use of the word church where it refers to numerous congregations in, in one singular noun. The Holy Spirit made you episcopoi, that's the plural, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And to shepherd is the Greek word Poimino, it's the verb form of the noun for pastor. So here you have the use of three different words, elder, bishop, and pastoring, the verb, 
all together indicating it's one office, looking at what that individual does from three different perspectives. The term elder focuses on the pastor from the vantage of his spiritual maturity. The term episkopos focuses on the pastor from the perspective of his authority and leadership. And appointment focuses on the pastor from the vantage of his spiritual gift. And Paul warns them, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, false teachers will come in. And he says in verse 30, Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. Now, we're about out of time, but next week we'll come back and when we look at this short letter to the Ephesians in Revelation 2, that's these key words they're told to remember. What are, what are they praised for? They're praised for the fact that they could not bear false teaching and they, false teaching and they tested all of those who claimed they were apostles and were not. And so there is a warning from Paul in Acts 20 that sets a certain characteristic among the, uh, in this congregation at Ephesus that began to dominate their church life. They were so concerned with doctrine that somehow it ended up affecting, uh, it, it, it was so overblown that somehow they forgot that doctrine is a means to an end. Doctrine is a means to our relationship with the Lord. Doctrine is a means to our living the spiritual life. Doctrine is not an end in and of itself. And so what happens is they will be condemned because they have lost their first love. And this is a challenge that Paul ends with in his prayer to the elders here. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And it is Revelation chapter 2 that focuses on this whole concept of inheritance. Well, I've gone a little bit longer than normal tonight because of the missions report, but we'll stop here and we'll come back next week uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be uh, have our, our eyes focused on the truth of your word and how you worked through the Apostle Paul in taking the gospel to this culture in the ancient world and how it revolutionized that culture. But even in the midst of that change, there was opposition and hostility because the cross is an offense to the unbeliever. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Uh, Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you will have eternal salvation. It's not a matter of what you do. It's not a matter of what church you belong to. It is simply a matter of what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that that faith alone in Christ alone is all that is necessary for salvation? That's the gospel. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.